Good morning, church. On this Lord's Day, we're going through the book of First Peter, a book written to a minority group and a large culture that was opposed to the, their message, and they're getting ready to enter into a time of persecution. So this book is a, a weighty book. The first part of the book is our privileged position in Christ, who Christ is in us and what he's done for us. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 11, and through chapter 4, verse 11, and he makes applications, and these applications are very, very bracing. So here are the scripture this morning. We're in 1 Peter, chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that by the power that the Holy Spirit brings, you'd open our eyes to understand and make application. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is my thesis statement, that it is a gracious thing to be so mindful of God that you walk in such a way that you embrace difficulties or even unjust suffering to the glory of the name of Christ. It is a gracious thing. As you're mindful of God to so live through difficulties that you bring honor to his name. Um, so this morning, I'm going to get away from the outline that's in the uh, worship guide. So let me give you the outline and we'll, so you can maybe follow through. So, so the question I'm going to ask is this. How do we walk in this fashion? Four things. Number one, we must be mindful of God, Abba Father. Number two, we must understand that we are to rejoice in the hope of heaven. Number three, that as we respond in a Christ-like fashion, it gives us a platform from which we can communicate the good news of Christ. And number four, as we live in this fashion, we encourage our brothers and sisters to stay strong in their faith, so we're mutually encouraged. So we have a purpose statement here, and it goes like this, equipping people to pursue Jesus Christ passionately so that we might impact our culture with the good news in a Christian worldview. So the equipping, though, is centered around the authority of and the teaching of the Bible. We believe this is God's Word that God has preserved it, and it is a light to our, our path and a lamp to our life, and so we, we, we rejoice in that. There's a, a, a little devotional called New Morning Mercies by a guy named Paul David Tripp, and in the book this past week on the 20th of October, he said that sometimes he would come home from his seminary experience in Pennsylvania, and he would go upstairs to see his wife in their little apartment as graduate students, and he would say this to her. He would say, I, I, I'm learning to think. I'm learning to think. And he says he didn't mean by that he was learning theological statements or going through confessions of faith, even though he was 
He said, by that I meant that I'm, I'm learning to make all of my life a part of the fabric of a Christian worldview that says Christ is Lord and supreme and I must live as a called out disciple of Christ. And so he puts our lives together, which leads to human flourishing. So I'm going to take a digression, excursus, side road for a few minutes, uh, and then we'll come back to this outline. So it is a great sorrow to me to know that this passage, which says slaves, was used by evangelicals to support chattel slavery. And by that I mean chattel slavery means property slavery, that you own slaves and you can break up families and put them here and put them there, that they, 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 you own them. There's a statement in the worship guide from Wayne Grudem, and this is what he says. Let me just read it. It's a paragraph. The horrible degradation of slaves in 19th century America gives the word slave a far worse connotation than is accurate for most of the society in which Peter was writing. Although mistreatment of slaves could occur then too, it must be remembered that the first century slaves were generally well treated and were not only unskilled laborers, but often managers, overseers, and trained members of various professions, doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, and skilled artisans. There was extensive Roman legislation for their services and they could expect eventually to even purchase their own freedom. So, very different. So when you read this in the context of the 1800s in America, it was totally at loggerheads with what this text is saying. And yet, I have men that I respect, their, li their books are in my library, who would use this text to support chattel slavery. One of them is George Whitfield. I just read another book on George Whitfield. He was the, the point of the spear in the first great awakening, a great preacher. And yet George Whitfield bought 5,000 acres in Pennsylvania, 500 outside of Savannah. And he was trying to develop an orphanage in Savannah, but he couldn't do it because Savannah was part of Georgia. And in 1735, the colony of Georgia had adopted an anti-slavery platform to their, their living. So they, you couldn't have slaves in Georgia. So George Whitfield one of my heroes, worked hard for years and years to get that overturned. And so in 1751, Georgia embraced slavery. And he built his orphanage and he developed his, his fields and he made an economic profit and he died in 1770. And that's a great sorrow. It's tragic. So I want to speak for myself this morning and make two points. Speaking as a part of the majority culture in this country. Brothers and sisters, I must, you must know your heritage, your history, and own it. Don't say dismissively, that happened a long time ago. Don't say dismissively, my family did not own slaves. I've, I've done my DNA research as much as I can. We were poor tenant farmers in, in, in you know, Appalachia, North Carolina, or the other side came over from Germany in the 1880s. So I, I think I can safely say we did not, but I don't know. But that's beside the point. Or, or don't say people need to get over it and just move on. Let me give you two examples from my life. So I grew up in a small town, played sports. There was a family in town, African-American family. Uh, the, one son was 
two years older than me, the best running back at our school by far and away to that point. Good running back. Good guy. And uh, people would say things from the opposing team to him, and we always took up for him because he was a teammate. Never really thought about the fact that he's an African-American. I mean, that sounds silly, but it wasn't. He had a younger brother that was three years younger than me who was a – I ran track also, and so uh, I, was, I ran sprints, not very good, but I was the 400-meter guy at our school, and so we're practicing. I'm a senior and full of myself, and he's a freshman, and he puts on some – he borrows somebody's tennis shoes, and he runs 400 meters, and he breaks my record by three seconds. And I realized all men are not created equal. His, they had one sister who was my age, and she made it her life ambition to torment me by telling me I should study more and do this on the playing fields and do this. And she was right, but she tormented me. She scared me. Anyway, so this wonderful family, mom and dad, three kids. And so I was nine years old, and I was downtown, if you can call it downtown, where the stoplight was, where I lived. And I saw the dad, Mr. Russell, who was a, a very gracious man. And he spoke to me and tousled my hair and laughed. And as he left, I said, have a good day, Mr. Russell. Well, I grew up in an environment where I said, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And everybody older than me was Mr. and Miss. And if I ever did not do that, my mouth was washed out with soap. So that and cursing, I had the soap experience, which I experienced several times. Mr. Russell walks out, and a man that I knew and loved very much for years and years bent down and said, you know, Buster, when you talk to black people, you don't say Mr. or Mrs. You just call them by their first name. I'm nine years old. I remember standing there thinking, that's stupid. You know why I thought it was stupid? Because it is stupid. Fast forward, I'm at the Citadel, taking a class under a history professor that I loved dearly who professed his faith in Christ and was a wonderful man. And Anyway, we're having a class on the antebellum south, and this professor who I respected, I was 20 years old, I was a sophomore or so, and he, he's, he's talking about slavery. Very briefly, we talked about slavery, but he said, he said gentlemen, I take great pride in the fact that my grandparents in, in Louisiana owned slaves because it shows they were people of economic viability. I remember sitting there thinking, I didn't say anything, thinking, that's stupid, because it is stupid. So, it's sad. And, and I have to understand that's part of the culture in which I live. So I, brothers and sisters, I do not, I do not need to be dismissive. Because well, I think it's silly that I didn't call Mr. Russell, Mr. Russell, supposedly. If you live under that, that thought system, it is a drain to your spirit. Because you're a second-class citizen, like the Dred Scott decision, 1857, or Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896. It's just ridiculous. Recently, I picked up a book. There's a, on the book, New York Times bestseller list, it's about... Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and their, how they work together. And I've read scores of books on these men. And so I picked up the book and I'm, 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 
It's a 350-page book, and I'm 80 pages into the book, and then I stop and say, I'm not going to read this book. I know how it ends. Jackson is mortally wounded at Chancellorsville in May of 1863 and dies. The war drags on for two more years, and in a, in a nation of 31 million people, 620,000 men are killed. Boom. Do the math. It's horrible. And then after that, you have Reconstruction, you have the Jim Crow laws, and you have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment that tries to make things right, and you have Colfax, Louisiana in 1879, and you have this and this and this, and it is heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak, and it is a sorrow to myself. I still sit and think, how did this happen? And so I look at this, I'm almost in a point number one, I, I think of three things. Number one, I need to be aware of how minority people feel in my culture today. Which means that I must have relationships where I talk. Which means, see, I want my relationships to be Christ-centered and Christ-focused. So I, I say to our minority friends, thank you for walking the path that says it's a glorious thing, a gracious thing in the sight of God. When you're mindful of God and you embrace suffering and you just endure it. Number two. Racism that says my race is ultimate. Nationalism that says my nation is ultimate. Family, family that says my family is ultimate is obliterated by the bloody cross of Jesus. Socioeconomic elitism is destroyed by the bloody cross of Jesus. It is impossible to stand at the foot of the cross and see God in the flesh dying for our sins and to walk away an arrogant person. It's impossible. Or an elitist. It's just impossible. I often think how, how, people, how people who are gifted, I mean, without Christ, how do you do it? One of my favorite passages in Matthew is Jeremiah chapter 9, the Old Testament. The Lord says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the mighty man boast of his might or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. Okay? So you know, there are people here who are very wise. You have PhDs, you're, you're good thinkers, and it's easy to be arrogant. There are people here who are, who are mighty. You're head of companies, and your word is weighty, and it's hard to be humble. There are people here who are rich. I mean, you've got it. You got it, man. You got it. You, your retirement is set. And you, your stock return last year was 25%. And if it was, please see me. I want a tip. Okay? But you've got it together. Listen, outside of Christ, arrogance reigns. I believe that. Under the banner of Jesus, it's destroyed. So I'm saying if, if you in your socioeconomic or in your education, some of you went to great schools, or here or here, or your profession, and you say, man, I've got it together. Those things are laid bare at the cross. Therefore, I must be a person who stands at the cross. In Matthew chapter 6, the Lord teaches us the Lord's Prayer. And he says, uh, we are to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And, and it's a beautiful statement, but then he makes a commentary at the end of the prayer. He says, for if you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, neither will your Father forgive your sins. Pretty clear. Pretty clear. 
Then why are we forgiving people if we know Jesus? Well, our sins have been forgiven. Why? why, why? Ephesians 4 says, be kind and tenderhearted and loving to one another just as God has forgiven you in Jesus. So I must stay hard by the cross. Thank you, Emmanuel AME, four years ago last June. The Emmanuel Nine were killed in their church. Thank you for leaving out the reality of grace instead of being vindictive and vengeful. Never be able to say thank you enough to those people, ever, ever, ever. So World Magazine had an article last August and it's entitled Leaving Hate Behind. It's about men who were once part of the white supremacist movement. And it's going to be a couple of paragraphs. The lead, our lead paragraph says, Our culture sometimes uses the labels white supremacist and racist carelessly, but they are serious belief systems that still exist today and those who have left the most violent and extreme forms of racism have much to tell us. It's an article written by a young woman who's Korean-American. It talks about a man named Tom Terrence who was sentenced to 35 years in prison because he tried to blow up a business and a home of a Jewish man because he hates Jews. And after being in prison for a number of years, he was released. But this is what it says. Life in prison meant Terrence had to engage constantly with non-whites. These interactions crushed his racist stereotypes. But reading the Bible convinced him or convicted him that it wasn't enough to simply not hate non-whites. God had commanded him to love others, even his enemies. After eight years in prison, thanks to a federal court-ordered work release program and numerous people who advocated for his early release, he was released in 1976. Now at age 72, he's the president of a study institute in Washington, D.C., named the C.S. Lewis Study Institute. In this paragraph, listen to this. There's always someone in a former's story, a former racist story. That someone awakens the former from years of indoctrination and ignorance, and it's always through unexpected kindness and empathy. For Terrence, the someones were non-white inmates who befriended him. It was a Jewish attorney who defended him and vouched for him and pushed for his early release. It was the chaplains who brought him Christian books and tapes. It was a tiny group of women who prayed regularly at a lo local church that he would be saved. That's why many formers are now active in condemning hate, but also warned against hating members of hate groups. One man, T.M. Garrett, Garrett, a former Klan leader and now an activist against racist violence in Mississippi, makes it his mission to humanize former white supremacists whom he says deserve compassion. Quote, it's okay to dislike and even hate their ideology, but never, ever, ever hate the human being, close quote. Garrett has helped dozens of former extremists leave their groups by introducing them to black churches and civil rights museums. He remembers taking one third generation Klansman to a museum in Memphis that showcases African-American accomplishments. Later that man told Garrett, quote, I just feel so small and dumb and uneducated. I had no idea anything like this existed. I feel like my dad and my granddad and my great-granddad lied to me all my life, which they did, close quote. So I'm just saying, brothers and sisters, the cross destroys this stuff. So it's a glorious thing to be so mindful of God that we walk in such a fashion that we endure even unjust suffering 
to the glory of his name. So my four points. How do you walk this way? Number one, I must be mindful that God is God. I must be mindful that he is Abba Father. He watches over me. Chapter 4, verse 19 says this. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You, just, you, you entrust yourself to a faithful creator while you do good. You, you entrust your soul because he's king. He watches over us. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. One of our verses that many people quote all the time is Romans 8, 28. For all, all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. He works in our lives. For those who before knew, we also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. God is in the business of, of changing us. So, so if I'm going to, it's a graceful thing, gracious thing to, to walk mindful of God. I've got to be mindful of God. In such a way that my life has changed. I've got to be mindful of the fact that God watches over me in Matthew chapter 10. Verse 29 and following, Jesus says, don't, 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 don't be overly concerned. You're much more valuable than birds. And not, a, not a, a sparrow falls from the sky without the Father's knowledge. And you're more important than birds. In fact, the Father has even numbered the hair upon your head. Wow. So I've got to be mindful of God. There's a little story in the Old Testament, a guy named David. Before he's king, he's being hunted by Saul, and he's got a, a small band of men that he's hanging out with, and they're trying to fight off all the tribes that are trying to do them in. And one day they leave the wives and the kids and the luggage here, and, and they fight off a tribe and tribal warfare, and they win. They come back, and another tribe has come in and grabbed the, grabbed the wives and grabbed the kids, and they've taken them out. Probably leaving a note, maybe you can buy them back. Where you can, you, you know, we're going to hold them hostage. And the, the scripture says that, 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 that David was troubled in his spirit because all the people spoke of stoning him. That, that would trouble me. You know, David's hanging out with these, this, this group. Of, these are his, the guys he's been shoulder to shoulder with, fighting off bad guys trying to do the right thing, and, and they take off the wives and the kids, another bad tribe, and, 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 and they, they get together and say, well, maybe we should stone David. I mean, good grief. I would be troubled. I mean, I, troubled is a small word. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Went, wow. He became mindful of God. See? It's a, it's a glorious thing when you're mindful of God and you walk in such a way that you endure hardship. What, what did he do? I, I don't know what he did. He just said his mind, he, he, he strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I think he may have gone out in the field and, and prayed, the Lord is, you're my shepherd. I shall not want. You made me lie down in green pastures. Still waters. You restore my soul. Lord, I, I need a green pasture. Yeah. Mindful of God. Conversely, there's a guy in the Old Testament named Abraham. The father of the nations, called of God, and Abraham had a really drop-dead good-looking wife named Sarah. I mean, she was runway good-looking probably. I'll tell you why. Twice, they're going to this area where tribes just kidnap women. And Abraham says, Sarah, you're, you're a showstopper. 
And these guys are going to want to take you. And if they find out you're married to me, they'll probably kill me. So will you do me a favor? Will you tell them you're my sister? And she said yes, which she did. And God supernaturally protected them. But that's what you do when you're wily e. Coyote and you're trying to do it on your own machinations. See, David was mindful of God. Abraham, in this case, was not. My question to you, are you mindful of God? It's a gracious thing, a glorious thing, to be so mindful of God that you walk in such a fashion that you embrace difficulties, sufferings. Secondly, we walk in this way as we have the hope of heaven. This is central to the scriptures, and don't, don't miss it. But for example, 1 Peter 1 says this, verse 8 says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You don't see him. He's resurrected. He's gone. But... but you understand who he is. The Holy Spirit is in you. The day is coming when you'll see him face to face. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely. My question to you, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer, are you anticipating the glory of heaven? It's easy to miss it, even though you grow old. And the Bible says life is a vapor. Boom. And it is. So there's a group around this time called the Stoics. And many people today are Stoics. The Stoics believe that life is tough and you just bear it. Stoics might say something like, keep a stiff upper lip. Just endure it. Go forward in a manly or womanly fashion. Stoics might say something like, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. The problem is sometimes life doesn't even give you lemons. The problem is that sometimes that light at the end of the tunnel is an oncoming train. Or they say the, the problem living in New York is that the light at the end of the tunnel is New Jersey. That's not good. We're not Stoics. One person has written about Stoics. He said this. He says, the, the Scriptures nowhere teach that believers can refrain from retaliation next week because they are Stoics and suffering, and they put on a brave face, but believers triumph over evil because they trust that God will vindicate and judge and bless them. Some people are what we call nihilist or pessimist or life is difficult, and their theme is curse God and die. Or Dylan Thomas, a famous playwright who was gifted but died of alcoholism, wrote a poem about the death of his dad. And he says, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Rage, just rage. It says, curse, curse death. Be angry. What are we? We're hopers. We have hope. The Bible calls it the blessed hope. We have an Abba Father. We have heaven. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are you when you're reviled 
You're persecuted for righteousness' sake. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you're reviled and persecuted and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely. For my sake, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. So I'll, I'll skip that beatitude. Happy are you. Happy, happy are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? Great is your reward in heaven. Neil Gorsuch is one of the new Supreme Court judges, and he tells the story about when he was clerking at the Supreme Court under a man named Wizard White, who was a wonderful jurist who, as a young man, was the highest paid football player in the National Football League when they didn't make that much money. And then he went to law school and became a Supreme Court justice, was assistant attorney general under John Kennedy. But even Judge Justice White, right before he retired, and they were walking through the Supreme Court building, and there were picture after painting after painting after painting of Supreme Court justices. And he said, Judge White would say, who's that? And he said, I'd give one out of three. And he said, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Oh, you don't disappoint me. He said, I don't know who any of these guys are. He said, the, the, the truth is that we will soon be forgotten. And I read that and I thought, really it was a statement of, of humility that we need to be men who do our duty now because Life is short. But, but, but I thought, you know, as a Christian, what's really cool is to realize that what we do now counts for eternity. And it's so encouraging. I mean, like I mentioned last week, a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus gets the Father's attention. A cup of cold water. I mean, a cup of cold water. It's not bottled. It's not DeSanti. It's not this flavored stuff that people pay two bucks for. It's just a cup of cold water. And I think of Ephesians 6 where Paul's talking about this issue of slaves and he says this, verse 8, he says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. God doesn't forget. Or I think of the, the, this incredibly discussed passage in Hebrews chapter 6 that talks about persevering in faith and he comes to verse 10 and this is what the Bible says. It says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. God, God doesn't overlook that. He sees it. He knows it. And well done, good and faithful servant. So it's just, it's just a great encouragement to keep pressing on. The third way we walk with a grace-filled God-mindful, embrace spirit, spirit attitude is that we realize that as we do this, it gives us a platform to speak of Christ. It gives us a platform to speak of Jesus. It's really good. Really good. Chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, when you go through a difficult situation and you realize it is a grace-filled, gracious thing as you remember God to embrace hardship, even to embrace, embrace being socially pushed aside or being unjustly accused and treated, and, and you live that way, you give the gospel wings when you speak of Christ. When, when you are gracious and forgiving and caring and persevering, and you're filled with the Spirit, and you give it wings. I go back to that article from World Magazine. There's always someone in a former white supremacist life who speaks Christ to them. 
Fourthly, it's a gracious thing to be mindful of God and to walk in a way that's pleasing to him because it encourages our brothers and our sisters. Listen to 1 Peter 5, verse 9. Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You resist strong because other people are walking through the same thing or far worse. I've told you before that I have the privilege of going usually once a year to North Africa to teach at a seminary. Five or six countries represented 60 to 70 people. Last year we were in a prayer group with a group of pastors from Algeria. On the persecution index, they're in the top 25. Number one is North Korea, Sudan, Iraq, Iran, China and India are going up the scale. We're in this prayer group and some guys are, because they're trying to be courteous, they're trying to pray in English, broken English, but there's a translator translating for me the prayer concerns and I'm sitting there and it's a moving experience. And so we pray and as we close, one of the man who's a dear man, kind of the leader of the group, gets a text and he shakes his head and he reads it to them, of course, an Algerian. It's translated that one of their brothers a fellow pastor the night before the church where they worshiped had been vandalized, spray painted, the literature destroyed, and part of the building was burned. And he read that, and I kind of looked around the circle, and the leader went like this. He went, just shrugged his shoulders and shook his head. And what he was saying is, guys, we expect that to happen. I'm going, I just thought, this is so good for me. This is so good for me. And I want to say thank you to the suffering church around the world. I want to say thank you to minority people who've just walked. I've got a list of people that are in my notes. I won't tell you their names, but uh, the first service in the uh, worship center. There's a guy in there who has um, cerebral palsy. I've seen him grow up. He's 21 now. and He's, a, he's received awards for being a very gifted mathematician. They're singing the first song over there and for some reason he's sitting up front he usually sits on the side and I'm standing next to him and he smiles and he raises his hands and he starts doing this. I couldn't finish the song. There's a woman who'll be here today who's one of my heroes who has embraced a very difficult marriage and issue after issue, her health, issue after issue after issue after, I've known her for 35 years. And every time I see her, she's thankful and kind and gracious. And it blows my mind. My favorite Sunday school class in this church is the friends class, the special needs children. They're delightful. 
Their parents are here. And these parents, these special needs children, they get up every day and they take care of them and they do it and they do it and they do it and they do it every day. And because they're walking that path and they've embraced it, man, it speaks to me. There are parents here who have buried children. And, and, and they still see life as a gracious calling to be mindful of God and to, to, to walk through difficulties to honor his name. And I love them for it. I've got a list here of people that I've worked with in marriages. And problem, problem marriage, difficult marriages. When I, when I have an, a, mo, a, a day or two of where Sarah and I, that's my wife, don't get along, it, it just emotionally devastates me. Uh, I don't lose my hunger. I, I don't ever lose my hunger, but that's beside the point. Yeah, but I'm emotionally devastated. And, and, and yet... I know people who have tried to do the right thing who year after year after year after year after year live with abusive spouses who, who lie about them, who are harshly critical over everything they do. And they, they've, they, 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 they've been there. And I look at them and I go, thank you. There's a couple that's not here today because we're traveling. I love them dearly. I've known them forever. That's part of the joy of being here for a long time. You get to know people. You know? They are finer parents than I will ever be on my best day. Their worst day is better than my best day. I'm, I'm being very honest. And so their child, I have one child that just turned against them. Turned against them for no reason. I'm, no reason. And they still go to that city to visit this child, and they say, can we take you out to lunch or supper? I'm not sure I have time for you. And they'll, they'll wait outside where he works just to say, hi, good to see you. And they love him, and they love him, and they love him, and they love him. And I tell you, it, it absolutely humbles me. As a dad, I can think of no pain that would be greater than for a child to emotionally turn against me. This past Father's Day, I have a family on the West Coast. Mother's Day comes in May, a gift and a card to, to my wife. So I thought, June's coming. The Saturday before Father's Day, I'm standing by the mailbox waiting for the mailman to come. Nothing happened. Well, th these things happen. No big deal. No mail on Father's Day. Father's, you know, Father's Day is in June. For those of you that don't know it, it's June. And so I go back to the mailbox. I come back and just stand by the mailbox, surely Monday. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen Monday. Tuesday. So they come here in August, and my son says, Dad, here's your Father's Day gift. I said, you're two months late. So, I mean, it, it, I got over it, but it hurt. If you see Zach, rebuke him. He needs to be rebuked for that. That's no big deal. I'm telling you, our parents that, that live through that is horrible. So knowing that these people, they, they, they have said by, by example and word, it is a glorious thing, like First Peter says, it's a glorious thing to be mindful of God and to walk in difficult places to the glory of his name. Even being treated unjustly, even, even, even being... Uh, 
it, it, it is. And that does nothing but, but build up brothers and sisters in Christ. It gives you a place to preach Christ. It, it heightens the hope of heaven in your life. And it makes you mindful of the greatness of the Father. So thank you for that. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today, and I thank you, um, I thank you that the Bible is not a dead letter. It's alive. I thank you that as we read it and think it and ponder it, that, that you bring wisdom to our lives. So I, I pray, Lord, that as we grow in our understanding, that we would grow in the application of all that Christ is for us. And I thank you for brothers and sisters. I thank you for minorities that have lived with grace and dignity as they worship Jesus. I thank you for, for, for parents who have embraced children that are, are uncaring. I thank you for children that have, that have embraced parents that are difficult. And I thank you for, for people that just hung in their marriage and done the right thing. I thank you for people who walk through very dark places, but they do it trusting you. And it does nothing but build up the body. And so forgive us for being unobservant. Forgive us for with a kind of disarming familiarity, dismissing issues that hurt people dearly. And teach us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.